Alright. Morning guys. What a unique day. <laughs> Everybody have a Merry Christmas? I hope. Awesome. Well I'm still falling out. It's 43 degrees below zero on the wind chill yesterday morning when I woke up in balmy Minnesota. So uh, you can thank Jesus that you don't live there. That's brutal. Uh, praise God my wife made it too. She's a native Floridian, so that's really hard for her. But uh, had a wonderful time with our family. I hope you guys did as well. Uh, we had a series this fall that we were walking through the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, we had a couple of hiccups along the way. We didn't quite finish the series like we were supposed to. So we've got a couple of psalms left over. We're going to finish our year with one of them. And then we're going to start our year next week with the other one. Uh, so uh, Nathan just read Psalm 133. That's where we're going to be. And if you were with us at all in the fall, walking through these hymns, these kind of uh, pilgrim psalms, as, as, as we kind of called them or coined them, uh, we were looking at this journey towards Jerusalem, right? The whole idea of this this book of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, the whole idea of that little section of the Psalms is that they were songs that were sung together in the community of Israel as they would go on their pilgrimages to worship. Um, and in the midst of these different psalms, we had a lot of emotion, as the psalms typically do, right? So we had some of these psalms that were just desperate calls to God, like, please, God, where are you? Will you help me? The world is terrible. I hate it here. Please save me, right? That kind of just burst of the heart that was coming out of some of the psalmists. There were some of the psalms that were uh, full of thanksgiving and praise to God for things that he had done. And then often the psalmist would say, God, please do it again. Right? They would, they would, they would rec uh, recognize and, and remember a time when God had done some great work and they were standing in a place where that wasn't their present experience. And so they were looking back on the past. They were saying, God, you've been good, but it doesn't feel like that right now. Will you please come and visit us again and be good to us once more? Um, and so we've seen kind of a lot of these different emotions. And as we jump back into them, uh, we jump back into kind of more of a, a wisdom psalm, which isn't necessarily full of kind of that uh, emotional outburst, uh, but rather it's a psalm that leads us into a, a further uh, understanding of the wisdom of God and what he has, he has made and what he has created in, in the community of followers, um, which in this case, in the psalm's case, is Israel. In our case, is the church, those who follow after Jesus Christ. Um, and so these, uh, this psalm is going to kind of show us some of the wisdom of the unity of God uh, and what it is that he does uh, among us to bring us together. Uh, the psalmist, actually this is David in this psalm, uh, uses the word brothers dwelling in unity, uses those words which are strong uh, words, and then gives a lot of um, illustration to kind of unique similes uh, that he expounds on to exhibit what it is uh, that God does to unify us. Uh, and so we're going to take a look at that this morning. And then next week, we'll take a look at the final psalm, Psalm 134, which is a, basically just a song of blessing to God, um, uh, which calls us in light of all of the psalms, every experience of the psalmists and their journey, in the light of the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the desert the desert times and the, and the time of plenty, in the midst of all those things that happen to still lift our eyes up to God and to say, God, you be praised uh, no matter where we are. Um, you be praised for all that you have done. Uh, so we're going to read this psalm again. We've been kind of, uh, during the series, we've been habitually reading these psalms over and over again to get them in our heads and in our hearts. 
Uh, they're poetry, so sometimes it can be a little interesting to take in. And so as we read it, I hope it uh, continues to sink into our hearts. And then we'll just walk through it verse by verse this morning uh, as we worship. So here we go one more time. Psalm 133. <coughs> All three verses, it says this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Aaron, uh, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray as we dig into this. Our Father in heaven, we're humbled um, to know uh, that you have loved us, um, that you have called us, that as we so poignantly saw in um, Advent, that you have pursued us by coming, uh, by Jesus being born, uh, coming into this dark world to shine the light of God. We know uh, by him, by his words, by his deeds, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, we truly know uh, the extent to which, God, you will go uh, to love us, to save us, and to make us your people. Uh, and so today, God, as we look at Psalm 133, we see something unique about these people that you are making, and that is that you unite them. Um, and God, it's not always true that the church reflects this idea, this idea of unity or community. Um, and so we recognize that it's not a man-made thing, Lord, that it isn't some... Um, uh, some religious duty of ours to manufacture unity. Um, but rather, God, would you shine our, your light on our hearts today that we would see unity is given and made um, by God himself and that we would um, come to a place of seeing one another in a un unifying way, that we would look on one another as brothers and sisters in this community um, that is reflecting your glory because you have done something to bring us together from all over the place all over the map. Um, God, might we see your unique beauty and glory in this reality today. Would you open our hearts and our minds that we might see Jesus clearly, that we would worship him rightly, and that our lives would be aligned with your word um, as we seek to understand it more clearly. Uh, we need your spirit for this help. Please, may we see Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this psalm begins right off the bat with this idea of brothers dwelling together in unity. And every time we say brothers, uh, actually in the New Testament, when you see brothers, there's usually a footnote. If you have some kind of a study Bible, a Bible that has a little bit of a note, and then you go down to the bottom of the page and it clarifies, it says this could say brothers and sisters. It's basically saying siblings. Uh, for, for lack of a better term. And so uh, when we see this uh, beginning right off the bat, there's a, there's a, special, uh, a special notice that should be taken when people who don't naturally dwell together, when they are brought to dwell together, there's a particular uniqueness and glory to God that comes when that is the case. And so when we look at Israel, we see a picture of what Jesus does in the future, and that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get all the way there at the end of things, but we see that Israel geographically, right? We're going to talk about that in the Psalms that's been talked about a lot in these Psalms of Ascent, that geographically there are things going on that show something deeper spiritually that's going on. We talked about that with the city of Jerusalem, how, it's a, how it was a tight city, that it's very uh, compact and, and united together, and how uh, one of the psalmists remarked at, the, at the, the architecture of the city and how it reflected God's great work among a people. So similarly is the geography of Israel, which has high 
points and low points and deserts and the sea and places of, of bloom and plenty and harvest and other places of just other wilderness. Uh, and that God was making in that geography, making a people for himself, and he was uniting them from all different places. So geographically, we see something that points to a spiritual reality, which is God pulling together people from very different places to make them one thing, right? And so God does that here with the brothers dwelling together in unity, and it's something that God has done for us through Jesus Christ in his work. And the idea of a community, John Collins says this, the ideal Israel is a community of true brotherhood where the members practice mutual concern for one another. Right, and So the hope and the desire for a community pulled together in unification by God's work is that there would be a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a treating and a loving and a caring and a concern for one another that would set the people apart from all the other peoples around them. That would make them look different, that would make them behave different, that would make them treat one another different and even treat outsiders different because of who God had made them to be. And so God's work in Israel was to pull them together, to make them dwell in unity so that others might look in on them and see that they are something different than what is outside of them. And in John 17, if you know anything about the book of John, in the, in, in the closing few chapters of John, uh, Jesus is with the disciples for a, a prolonged period of time, going through a, a, an upper room kind of discourse or teaching with them. And in John 17, if you talk about unity in Christian circles, often this is a passage that can come, come up. It starts in verse 20, well, it goes before that. But in verse 20 through 23, Jesus prays for the unity of the people who follow after him, right? His disciples. He prays for their unity. And John 17, 20 says this. This is Jesus talking to the Father in a prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only. So he's not talking about his disciples only. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that stretches all the way to now, right? So Jesus at this moment is praying for not just his disciples, but you and me, right? He's praying for everybody who would believe through the word of the disciples. So verse 21, that they may all be one. Jesus prays that all believers at all times in all places who have been uh, heard and taught about Jesus through the word that they would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So Jesus essentially prays the same thing two times in a row with a little bit different words. And in there, there's some really unique terminology, and it's unique terminology to the Christian faith because it points to the unity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. The whole idea of community doesn't start with you and me. The whole idea of unification of people from diverse places and times and existences, that them coming together under one, that doesn't start with us. It starts with God in heaven in eternity past. Because God dwelling in heaven in eternity past was not by himself a singularity. He was a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Right. This is unique Christian concept of God. 
No other religion talks about the Trinity like Christianity talks about the Trinity. And it's something that isn't named by that word Trinity in the Bible, right? But it's something that we see inherent in a lot of the language of Scripture. Like in the beginning, what does it say when God created? He said, let us, right? He spoke in a plurality. When Jesus was baptized by John and came up out of the water, there was a dove that descended from on high, and then there was a voice, the voice of the Father that was spoken. We saw the Father, we saw the Son, and we saw the Holy Spirit in that moment. And so here, too, even in Jesus' prayer, for unity amongst us believers, we see a reflection of Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, right? And so there is no other God. There is only one God. God is unique in that he is not like any man. He is not like any other created being. He will for our, forever always dwell in his own existence. And in that uniqueness, there is an expression of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? There is nobody else like that. There is nothing. We can use all sorts of analogies, and they all fall apart because nothing quite reflects the Trinity in a perfect way that the Trinity is in existence by itself. And so God dwelling in Trinity means that God has not existed in eternity past as some lonely deity. He's not just sitting around like, oh man, I need something to do, I'm bored. No, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, for all time and eternity past, delighted in one another, glorified one another, enjoyed the fellowship of one another, looked on one another and said, there is nothing like this. This is something unique that will not be ever again. This is beautiful. And there's praise and there's honor and there's glory amongst Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in the beginning, we see community. And then God made man in his image. And what did he say when Adam's chilling alone in the garden? This isn't good. It's the only time God said not good in the whole creation story was when man was by himself. He said, this is not good. I should make a suitor fit for him. So God's immediate creation was to create community. And so in community, in the unity that Jesus prayed for, we reflect the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And so there's a few things we need to talk about because first we need to look at what unity isn't before we look about look at what unity is. Because there's some uh, man-made concepts of what unity is that if we think that's what unity means, if we think that's what God's calling us toward as a community, then we're going to miss the mark. So we need to kind of identify the reality of what unity isn't. And I want to talk about this in three ways. Number one, uh, unity is not uniformity. Number two, unity is not silenced submission. And number three, unity is not cause-oriented, right? And so some people would say that unity requires uniformity, okay? So uniformity is a lack of uniqueness amongst persons. And that's not what we see in the Trinity, when we look at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see distinct roles. We see different jobs. We see different things that they do within the plan of redemptive history. And so we don't see uniformity. We see unity, and we want to see that same thing in the community that God makes, right? And so this is why the difference of age and the difference of race and the difference of class and the difference of geography and the difference of profession, and the difference of look, and the difference of expression, and the difference of musical taste, and the difference of cars, and the difference of houses, and the difference of all these things that exist within the church are to be praised, not to be pushed down so that we all become the same type of person. Right? Like I lived through the 90s youth culture, thank Jesus, I made it. 
<laughs> and in that culture, there was a pursuit of uniformity amongst youth and amongst leaders in the youth in America because of the fear of being different. And so often music was, pre people were pressed towards a particular music expression. They were pressed towards certain lack of tattoos or piercings or certain types of clothes. You know, there was this, this pressure to fit a mold. There was this, this artificial unity that was manufactured, but it all, all it actually was was uniformity. We wore the same thing. We listened to the same thing. We went to the same places. We said no to the same stuff. We said yes to the same stuff. It was uniformity, and there was no unity there. And so uniformity is not unity. This is why there has to be room in the gospel for all peoples from all education backgrounds, from all racial backgrounds, from all geographical locations, every place, every kind of people. There has to be room in the gospel to say, Jesus is here for you. He is not exclusively a middle-class, white, American, Christian God. Please, no. Amen? I mean, that is grotesque. To isolate community and to isolate unity into that sort of uniformity is to dismiss the power of God's ability to reconcile those things that are different. The power of the gospel is that people that don't belong together sit down and sub. We enjoy one another's company. We can put away our preferences and walk into a room and elevate the preferences of another and say, for the sake of Jesus being glorified by us being mm -hmm. unified, I will not seek my own good, but I will seek yours. Mm -hmm. It's costly, and it's not typically the message of religion because often religion entrenches itself and says, I'm just going to find my comfortable little life and guard against anything that would threaten that. That's not unity. That's uniformity, and it's a false version of unity, and it is not costly to, or it is not glorious to God to live into that kind of fake unity. And so I pray, and I believe, and I trust that God is building, even here in our church, a people that understand this is not about my preferences. This is not about getting people to look like me. This is not about getting people to spend money like me, or to go places that I enjoy, or to listen to music that I like or to prefer the styles that I have acquired, the tastes that I have acquired. This is about the gospel spreading to all peoples, to all kinds of peoples like we talked about last week, to all places, to all types, because that is the glory of being united under the banner of God. So we know unity is not this uniformity. It is also not silent submission. Unity is not achieved through silencing opposition. Unity is not achieved through lack of questioning, right? Unity is not achieved by popping one man and one ideology up on a platform and bowing down to that thing, okay? Religion has often done this as well, and it is absolutely uh, antithetical to true unity, right? We pick a message, a man, we pick, we, we pick a, a certain kind of uh, ideological bent, and we say, we're going to unite under that guy, under that thing. Uh, rather than uniting underneath Jesus. And what's, what's destructive about this is that anytime that one ideology or that one personality has the, like they often do, have the propensity to go astray and there's, there's unity preserved through silence, then we see a train wreck, right? And so to pursue unity is not to say, I'm never going to ask a question. To pursue unity is never to say, hey, wait, we're different here, let's talk about it. 
It's not to ignore those things, but rather to bring them up so that we might submit to a greater unity, not the unity of a man, but the unity of God and his word. And to seek after the unity that only he can bring. And so we're not looking for that kind of unification that just is, you know, lemmings, right? Just all silenced and running, you know, like that. But the unity that would pursue a submission to Jesus more than any submission to any man. And this, we, we desire this. It's hard, but it's right to come under the kind of scrutiny that would allow for opportunities and questions and pressing and, and differences of opinions, right? Here at our church, we talk about closed-handed and open-handed things. Um, at our membership, we talk about this and, and we try to talk about it regularly uh, because we believe this is kind of where unity lies, that there are certain things that Scripture is absolutely 100% clear about that historical Christian faith and creeds would agree with, and those things are non-negotiable to us. So we hold them in a closed hand. We say that the Word of God is given by Him, it is inspired by Him, it is authorized by Him, it is our authority, and we submit to it. That's a closed-handed issue, right? Because of that truth, we submit to the reality of God the Trinity. We submit to the deity of Jesus. We believe that Jesus really lived, really died, really rose again, and that He was fully God and fully man, and that's non-negotiable, right? So we submit to these closed-handed uh, authoritative matters. But then in the open hand, we have different kind of convictions, but we don't call them the same as we call uh, like inspiration of scripture or the deity of Jesus. Like the way we conduct our services. That's not a close-handed issue. It's an open-handed issue. If you don't like it, let us know, right? We're not going to argue about it. It's just the way we're doing it at this time. It's not something set in stone. It's not something that is in existence for all eternity. It's a preference. So it's in the open hand. Right? We even talk about baptism being in the open hand. We practice um, credo-baptism, not paedo-baptism. But it's not something that's so close-handed that we're not going to recognize anybody who would believe in paedo-baptism. Right? Which means we, just, we baptize people who we are, have believed in Jesus, uh, where some people baptize babies. Um, and so we practice the credo-baptism. People who have confessed and believe in Jesus, that's who we do baptism. Right? But that's in the open hand because we understand that theologically it's a really broad thing. It can be pretty uh, widely argued and it's not as clear and as certain and as solid as the other things in the close-handed. And so when we, when we seek unity underneath historical Christian Orthodox faith, all of the things that all of us can believe in in all time because they've been clear for a long time, uh, and that we submit to those things that we just haven't cooked up as our preferences. Right? We say these are the things that have stood the test of time. And the authority of Scripture points to them being our authority. And really, they're the majors that we major on as we walk through the Word. We see them again and again as we just journey through Scripture and preach through Scripture. They're the, they're the issues that we continue to pound on. This is why almost every single Sunday you'll hear of Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection. Because there is nothing more sure. There is no hope more guaranteed, and there is nothing that I can do to change that, or Jason can do to change that, or you can do to change that. That message is clear, and it's sure, and we're going to proclaim it from the rooftops. And we're going to unite under that. And if we've got these little open-handed issues that we might divide on, that's okay. Let's agree to disagree. Let's do so in a brotherly and a sisterly manner. But we're not going to divide over those things, because the things that we hold in common are so strong and so sure and so clear that we can unite under those things. And so it never has to do with silent submission and just not even raising a question or raising a doubt or asking. We always want that to be a, 
a part of our church that we're having discussions and walking together trying to understand clear, clearly what it is that we're believing and preaching. Uh, and finally, unity is not cause-oriented. Now, this might rub your tail feathers the wrong way, but I'm, I love you, but we're not going to unite over politics. Um, and I'm actually delighted. Like during elections, and I text different people in our church, and somebody wins and somebody loses, and I, we've got them all in our church, and I text one and text the other, and I love you. I know you really wanted this result, and it didn't happen, or you were really glad for this result. Don't put all your hope in, you know, just because we're all over the place in this church, and I'm really thankful for that. I think it speaks to a unity that God is doing, right? And the thing about uniting over politics is often the reality is that we have to center on something that's man-made, right? Uh, and, And so as long as any of our unity is centered around the issues that man has created, Uh, then it's not going to endure, Uh, right? Winds of change are going to come. We're going to go up and down and left and right or wherever you want to describe it as. And and that stuff's going to change in time. And so therefore unifying over those things is not going to hold us together forever, right? What will? The unchangeable one, Christ the risen one who, who lives forevermore. He, we can unite under and around because he will endure for all time. And so as long as, and we see this in the uniformity and kind of the silent submission or even the cause orientation, that they're often man-centered attempts at unity and they won't hold. The glue that binds a Christian community, the glue that enables true biblical unity is that which is based around God, right? Our unity is based around God's truth and not our truth. And that's an important aspect of our unity. And our unity, this is beautiful, it's produced through God's work and not our work, right? If we have a man-centered reality as our unification, then we have to work towards that aim, and we have to maintain that unity. But when God has worked for us, and we come under His unification, we all know who's done the work. And we all know who's not done the work, right? You and me, we haven't done the work. And so therefore our unification is sure and it's solid because it is not based in my doing or my lack of doing, but it's based completely in his ability to do. God unites us through his power. And the unity that he gives is maintained by that power. And so true Christian unity has as its center the reality of God. And so back to our psalm, verse 2 and verse 3 they show us two different but equally important parts of the life of Israel that point to the unity that God alone can bring. Okay, so let's look at verse 2. Psalm 133, verse 2, it says, It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, if this is strange language to you, that's totally cool. Uh, It is a little bit unique. Uh, It's based way back in the Levitical law. Uh, and it's talking about the consecration of the priests, right? And so, long story short, God's people continued to fail to fulfill their obligations and, and, and to live up to God's moral law. And so, God established a system of sacrifice. The system of sacrifice said, you, because you've lived in, uh, improperly, because you've lived immorally, because you've rebelled against my laws, uh, you should die, essentially, Right? The glory of God is perfection and holiness, and when you fall short of that glory, the result is a separation from God, and the ultimate separation from God is death. 
And so God says your sins deserve a penalty, a payment, and that payment is death. And so he established the sacrificial system so that animals would be sacrificed as a representation of what should happen to us when we sin. Right? And the people who did those sacrifices, who performed them, who actually did the cutting and the burning and all that stuff, were priests. And to show Israel how important approaching God in holiness was, there was this entire consecration uh, ceremony for the priests. And so there was blood involved, and there was washing involved, and there was oil involved. And so David's making a simile about the unity of God's people uh, to that consecration process that was given to Israel. And so these priests had to be washed, they had to be cleansed, they had to be anointed. And God says, when we dwell in unity, it's like that anointing running down over Aaron and cleansing him. Making every Israelite who reads that sentence think about the consecration of the priests and how they had to be washed and cleansed and made right in order to offer a sacrifice to God. And that sacrifice to God was required for the community to live rightly before the Lord. And so their thought would immediately have gone towards this idea of being cleansed. And this is the beauty of our unity, is that we are united in our need for cleansing and in God's ability to do that cleansing. So often when we seek unity amongst man-made things, we seek it in our strength. Right? I'm going to find unity in my cause. I'm going to find unity in my ability to do a thing. I'm going to find unity in my being right and those guys being wrong. And all the people that I'm right with, we're unified. Right? And like we so based around that work, the distinct difference about Christian unity is that we're unified in our weakness. We're unified in our complete lack of ability to live the way that God made us to live. We're unified in that. Right? And you're thinking, what a downer, man. This is depressing, right? But look, when we're unified in our need, we look at people completely different. Right? As long as you're unified in your strength or in your rightness or in your philosophy or in your idolatry, what are outsiders? They're dumb. They're, you know, enemies. You know, often you demonize them or you just feel bad. Oh, poor those people. Right? That's what happens when we unify in our strength. When we unify in our weakness, what, how do we look at outsiders? Just like me. You are you're just like me. You are weak. Probably not as weak as me. I'm really weak. You're weak like me. And it changes the way that we conduct ourselves before others. This unification that God brings and God brings alone by his strength and by his doing is something that enables humility in us. It encourages us to live towards others as Jesus has lived towards us, which is not judgmental, not pushing us further into the margins and away from God, but rather doing what? Pursuing us, running after us, loving us, right? This is what happens when there's unity in our weakness, when we fall under the cleansing of God, we submit ourselves to what he has done. And so this picture of the oil running down the beard of Aaron draws our hearts and our minds to this idea that God has to do something to cleanse us. We're unified in that need. And that unification lifts our eyes towards him. In verse 3, David talks about unity and how God provides. It's like the dew of Hermon, Hermon, 
which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. So this is another geographical lesson. Um, Mount Hermon was a really tall mountain. We talked about Zion and, uh, and Jerusalem, how it was elevated. From that place, Mount Hermon was even higher up. And geographically, it was in a place that was uh, visited with more rain. Geographically, it was in a place that experienced more of uh, precipitation. And so the idea of that dew coming down on that mountain was an idea of God providing for the fruitfulness of Israel, providing for the crops, providing for the needs of provision that Israel had. If there was not rain or, or streams that came down from the north, then there was no hope of crops down in the lower uh, geographic regions of Israel. And so this picture of, of this dew flowing down the mountain was a picture of God doing something outside of the people's capacity to provide for the things that they needed. God had always pictured Israel as a place that would glorify him, not just in the existence of, of uh, their unity as a people, but also in his sustenance of them as a people. That God would continually provide for them. He would meet their needs. He would take care of them. He would bring them fruit in, in and out of season. That he would, he would provide in these spectacular ways for them. And so Israel was united under this idea that the only one who could provide for them was God. Their total dependence, everything that they needed was given to them by God. And if the dew wouldn't fall on the mountain, which was not their own doing, if the rains wouldn't come at the right time, which was not their own doing, then they were helpless. They wouldn't have anything. God alone is the one who provided for their needs. And in their dependence on God, there was a unity there. A unity that says everything that I have comes from God. Right? And this is required. This is... A requirement if we're to be united across uh, socioeconomic positions in our lives, in our church. If we who have a lot look at what we have as though we have earned it, then we are going to treat it differently than if we look at it as if God had provided it. Right? Because there's an elevation when we've provided it for ourselves. When we look at, I've done this by my strength and I worked hard and I gained all of this. Rather than recognizing God has given, God has blessed, I can think straight, God gave me that brain, <laughs> right? I went to that school, God gave me that ability, God gave me that acceptance letter, I got that job, God provided that resource, right? When we recognize that, it changes everything about what unity looks like, because so long as I stand in my entitled position of having all the stuff that I've earned for myself, I'm never going to help anybody, I'm never going to give anything to anybody, I'm never going to see the, the, the first century church come to life in, in our day and time where people provided for the needs of others. That's not going to be my reality because I'm going to hoard my stuff. I'm going to keep my things for me because I've worked hard for all that I've earned. Instead, when we see that God has provided, it levels the plane. We realize, man, everything I have belongs to God. It's all been given to me by his hand. Therefore, my response to those who don't have is silly people. They haven't earned no. No, my response to those who do not have is, maybe God's going to provide through me. Maybe God's going to provide through this community to help people who don't have what some of us enjoy. I hope we can get there. We need to get there. To where we benefit the, the life of the uh, city around us by meeting needs and by saying it's God who's met this need. And so again, in this bit of unity, we see 
that there's a unification in God's provision. To those who believe, to those who know they have a need for spiritual cleansing and a need for God's provision, there's a unity that happens. When we look to not, uh, when we look not to ourselves, but rather to God to give us our cleansing spiritually and our provision physically, we know that it's Him who's done the work. And the common theme in these two illustrations that David gives us is something up coming down. Right? Oil, I mean, when you read that sentence, second sentence, you're just like physically watching oil go from the top of a guy's head down onto his collar. There's a top-down happening. Same with a high mountain and the dew and the streams running to the low valleys. There's an up going down. And so in all of the, our speak of unity, it is never an up or a down going up unity. It's never an us working to do the unification, but rather it's a God, uh, it's God's work coming down to us. This unity, it all comes from God's work. We are united under his good gifts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, that not what a man is in himself as a Christian his spirituality and piety constitutes the basis of our community. What determines our brotherhood is what the man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. And so when we see unification happen, it's because for you and for me, something has gone from up to down. And that's God. His work in your life and in my life, it is gone from his hand down to me on earth. And we're similar, we're exactly alike actually in this truth that I stand in utter need of spiritual cleansing and I stand completely dependent on God for, for living and so do you. And so therefore, we can look at each other and be eye to eye with all our different clothes, with our different languages, with our different skin colors, with our different sized wallets, with our different family histories, with our different sin propensities, with our different weaknesses. We can look at one another and say, you're weak and I'm strong. No, we look at one another and go, you're weak, me too. A different weak, but weak. I'm unified with you in the fact that I need God to cleanse me and to provide for me. And so unity has nothing to do with my work and what I can do and everything to do with God's work and what he can do to unify us. We unify in our weakness. We unify in our need. And we unify in the provision of God that he has met all of our needs, spiritually and physically. I want to close with a passage from Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7. It's a beautiful exposition of what salvation is. It says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see how in verse 10 the unity comes because of all of Jesus' work? He has done all of this great work and it's united us together in Him. And the final result, look at the last part of verse 3 in Psalm 133. 
For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The result of us being unified under the work of Jesus is praise being given to God above. When we unite because of his work for us, we don't praise ourselves. We don't boast in our strength. We don't say, look at what we've done. We humbly bow our knee and say, God alone has done this great thing. Give glory to God. That is, he has united man and woman. He has united rich and poor. He has united educated and uneducated. He has united all of the races and all of the classes and all of the places. That God has done this great work. Praise his holy name for that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's read Psalm 133 one more time, and then I'll pray. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your work. We're utterly dependent on you to cleanse us, to make us right with you, to unite us with one another, even though we're different in so many ways. We are the same in the fact that we need you. We are the same in the fact that we're sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. We are the same in the fact that God alone has done the work to provide for our spiritual need. We are the same in the fact that it is God who provides for all of our daily needs. Lord, help us to humbly bow before you, to recognize that our unity is not in our strength, but our unity is in our weakness. And therefore, our unity is in your strength, because you are strong to save, and you are good to give to us the things that we have, not so that we can boast in ourselves, but so that we might boast in Jesus. We love you, God. Would you unify us, Lord, and make us a sweet-smelling Savior to the, uh, to the community around us, that people would look in and say they're not all the same, they're not lemmings marching in an order, they're not just unified in causes, but they're unified at a deeper level. God, may our unity, like Jesus' prayer, reflect for the glory of God in our city and in our world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.